title of the sermon tonight is Bible Prophecy Foundations. Bible Prophecy Foundations. The Bible says in Psalm 11.3, If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? If we don't have foundations in place, we can't build anything. And when it comes to Bible prophecy, there are a lot of people that lack a certain basic foundation, which caused them to not be able to understand anything about Bible prophecy. I've noticed that when I talk to people that are goofed up on Bible prophecy, I struggle to even communicate with them. It's almost like we're speaking a foreign language because we don't have the same foundation. You know, if you're going to talk about algebra or calculus or geometry, you have to start out with a basic foundation in arithmetic. You have to understand that 2 plus 2 is 4. You, know, you have to understand just basic mathematics before you can get into anything advanced, okay? And so tonight, I want to lay down some Bible prophecy foundations. If you don't understand these foundational truths, how can we even have a conversation about Bible prophecy? How can you study Bible prophecy at all? And these foundations will be strongly laid from the Bible. Other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, that is Christ Jesus. Right. Christ Jesus is the rock. His sayings, his word is the rock upon which we stand. So we're going to lay a strong foundation from the Bible. And these are three areas that people are usually wrong on because they didn't get their definitions and foundations from the Bible. They got it from man-made teachings. Okay? So... Put everything out of your mind today that's a preconceived idea, and let's just go to the Bible and build a foundation here on what the Bible actually teaches. Now, the first foundation I want to show you is right here in 1 Thessalonians 4. We're going to turn to some other places to lay this foundation. But number one, if we're going to talk about this, we've got to have a vocabulary that's consistent where we're both speaking the same language here. So the first thing that we need to understand is that when we say the second coming of Jesus Christ, we're talking about what's commonly known as the rapture. Now, right away, people would just shut off at that point. No, this guy's wrong. I thought, oh, the second coming of the rapture. Okay, why don't we see what the Bible says? Right. right. You know, instead of just freaking out, let's look at what the Bible says here. Let's get a biblical foundation so that we can even talk about, you know, when the rapture occurs in relation to the tribulation. First, you better figure out what the second coming of Jesus Christ even means. Amen. I mean, if we're talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ, we're not talking about an obscure doctrine. Right. We're talking about a major Bible doctrine. <laughs> the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the first thing that we have to establish biblically is that the rapture, or what we commonly refer to as the rapture, even though that's not the biblical term, is the second coming of Christ. Right. Look, if you would, at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which is an undisputed passage. Everyone agrees that 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 is referring to the rapture. And it says in verse, you know, everyone who's a Baptist, everyone who actually believes in, you know, taking the Bible literally, not like these uh, A-mill or preterist or other goofball doctrines. I'm talking about people who actually believe in the book of Revelation. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 15. It says, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord. Now there it is right there. That we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, 
and the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord, wherefore comfort one another with these words. The Bible's real clear that the rapture is called the coming of the Lord, right there in 1 Thessalonians 4, 58. Well, I don't think it's the second coming. Well, is it coming 1.5? I mean, let's count together. He came in Bethlehem's manger. Everybody got one there? Okay, I'm telling you, we've got to go to the basics of arithmetic here because people will sit there and tell you all day long. People who believe in, in a pre-tribulation rapture will tell you, well, don't confuse the rapture with the second coming. Well, I'm already confused because right here it's called the coming of the Lord. And I know he came once in Bethlehem and I can count to two. This would be the second coming. Right. Now, what we're going to do, we're going to look at all the other mentions of the coming of Christ or at least, you know, we'll go through as many of them as we can in the New Testament and let's see if this foundation can be made a little stronger. Let's put a little rebar into this biblical foundation by going to chapter 5. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Because what are we saying? Foundation number one. We can't build anything. We can't talk about anything until we know what the second coming is. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the second coming being the rapture, that makes sense that we would want to be preserved blameless until that time. Our spirit, our soul, body will be preserved blameless until the time that he comes in the clouds, until the time that we meet him in the air. Go, if you would, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Just right over the page there. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, is that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who we know as the Antichrist. So the Bible is talking here about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together unto him. Again, consistently relating the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with us being caught up together with him in the clouds. Go, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians 2. Okay, go to Luke 12 also. So put one finger in 1 Thessalonians 2, go to Luke 12. While you're going there, for sake of time, I'll read you a few more scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7 says this, So that you come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is really consistent. We're waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're looking forward to. And he says that we want to be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if the day of Christ or the coming of Christ was at some later time, seven years later, as people try to teach, well, then there'd be no danger in us not being blameless on that day because we've already been up in heaven for seven years, according to people who are mixed up on this. Makes more sense if we're actually living on this earth where there's a question of whether we're going to be found blameless on that day. And that's what we'd be looking forward to. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? 
James 5 pretty much says the same thing. Verse 7, it says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. So the Bible is real clear that the coming of Christ, the coming of the Lord, it's something that we're looking forward to. It's something that we're waiting for. It's defined as being gathered together with him. It's equivalent to Christ coming in the clouds. The trumpet sounds. We're caught up together to be with him. We're, you know, we want to be found blameless in that day. We want to be living for Christ and so forth. Luke chapter 12, if you're there, look down at verse 40. Be ye therefore ready also for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when ye think not. Now, people who mix up what the second coming is, they still turn to this verse all day long and talk about the rapture with this verse. But it's like they don't put it together that the coming is when he cometh. See, just because it says cometh, it's still the coming, right? The coming of our Lord. Verse 42, And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. So again, when Jesus Christ comes, the coming in the clouds, the second coming... When he comes, you know, he wants to find us doing right, which makes sense, right? If we're on this earth and we're, we're living our lives and he wants to show up and find us doing what we're supposed to do, find us blameless, we're looking forward to it, etc. Everything in the Bible on this is consistent, okay? Look down at 1 Thessalonians 2 where I had you turn. It says in verse 19, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming for year our glory and joy. See, the Apostle Paul is talking to people that he and Timothy and Silvanus had won to Christ. And he's saying, you're going to bring us great joy at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, when we're reunited with you, when we're gathered together with you, when we meet you in heaven, that's going to be a joyful reunion. You are our hope and glory and joy and crown of rejoicing at Christ's coming which makes sense. It's, it all fits perfectly with 1 Thessalonians 4 being the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. It's been very consistent up to this point, hasn't it? Very consistent. But yet all day long, you'll hear people try to tell you the difference between the rapture and the second coming. And they'll try to tell you it's two different things and, you know, you're confusing the rapture and the second coming. No, you can't count. Because the second, if it's the coming, then it's the second coming. Or is it the first coming? Then you're denying that Christ even came. You're not even saved. There's coming one, coming two. But this is a foundational truth. And, and you're going to misunderstand a lot of scripture if you try to say, well, no, the second coming is Revelation 19 and Armageddon and putting his feet on the Mount of Olives and all, you know, they've got all these ideas that they didn't get from the Bible because what did the Bible say is the coming? It all points to 1 Thessalonians 4. Here's another popular saying, and I remember them just pounding this into us in Bible college over and over again. This is what they said. At the rapture, Christ comes with, or he comes for his own. And at the second coming, 
he comes with his own, right? Who's ever heard that one? Just hands all over the building. They say, at the rapture, he comes for his own, but on the contrary, on the second coming, he comes with his own. Okay, well, let's see if that's true, okay? 1 Thessalonians 3.13, it says, to the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. There it is right there. At the second coming, he comes with his own. But at the rapture, he comes for his own. Huh? <laughs> Now, 1 Thessalonians 3 is parallel with Jude. You don't have to turn to Jude, but in Jude, there's something very similar where it says, And Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all, etc. Okay, so... Does the Lord come with his own at the second coming? Amen. Okay, but guess what? At the rapture, he comes with his own also. Why? Because the, have you been listening for the past 10 minutes? Because the rapture is the second coming. Okay, look at 1 Thessalonians 4 for the proof. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, it says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, watch this, even so them also which sleep in Jesus, watch this, will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep, for the Lord himself shall descend from men with a shout, etc. So in the rapture passage here, we have the Lord coming with his own. Second coming, with his own. Rapture, with his own. Right. Now look, this is not a complicated sermon, but some people who hear this preaching will, will resist and fight it. No. <laughs> Just relax and let the Bible teach you something here. Point one is that the rapture is the coming of the Lord. And therefore, basic math tells us that's the second coming, okay? Point two, which this point leads us directly into point two. Foundation number two, okay? We got that thing laid down really solid. And you'll never find a verse on the coming or cometh that's going to contradict what we just laid down as, as foundational. But number two is that the resurrection is a bodily resurrection, It's a bodily resurrection, okay? This is the next important foundational truth that we must lay down about Bible prophecy because there's a resurrection associated with the rapture because he said that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent, prevent means come before, them which are asleep. Why? Because the Bible says the dead in Christ shall rise first, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. So the second foundational truth is that the resurrection is a bodily resurrection. Now, why is that important? Well, the reason why that's so important is to understand the difference between the body and the soul. Okay? Here's why. The moment that you die, if you're in Christ, if you're a saved child of God, the moment you die, your soul goes to heaven right at that moment. 
You don't have to wait for the resurrection. You don't have to wait for the second coming. You're not waiting for the rapture. Your soul immediately goes to heaven at that point. You say, prove it. Well, here's the proof. Paul said in Philippians, I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And right in that context, he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I have a desire to depart and be with Christ. He didn't say I have a desire to lay in the earth for a couple thousand years and wait. He said I have a desire to depart and be with Christ. He said in 2 Corinthians 5 that he desired to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. See, for the believer, being absent from the body is being present with the Lord. The body remains here. The soul goes straight to heaven. Now, for the unbeliever, the unsaved, when he dies, his body remains here also. See, when someone dies, nobody's body disappears. It's not like they die and then their body just slowly fades away and then there's just clothing. <laughs> the body remains, right? It's the soul that departs. And it either goes to heaven or it goes straight to hell. Because remember the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, it says in hell he lift up his eyes being in torment that fast. You either go straight to heaven or straight to hell. Now, this is why people get confused on the whole with his own, for his own thing. Here's why they get confused on that. Because they don't understand that at the rapture, he's coming both with his own and for his own. Here's why. If you look down at your Bible there in verse 14, it says at the end, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Now, if Christ is coming in the clouds and he's bringing them with him, where is he bringing them from? From heaven, right? He's coming from heaven because right now Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. One day he's coming again, and when he comes, he's going to bring them with him because they're where? Heaven. Now, that shouldn't surprise us because of the fact that when a person dies, they go to heaven. Not the body, but the soul. But then it says the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now, rising first, that's not coming from heaven, is it? That's coming from earth. Rising, so that's referring to their body. See what I'm saying? So the body dies, is left behind. The soul is carried by the angels into heaven. They're in heaven. They're waiting. Then at the second coming, at the rapture, Jesus brings them with him, the souls. Then the bodies rise. And in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, they're changed. They're reunited with their body, but it's a new glorified resurrected body that's immortal that will never die again okay but this is where people get confused because uh, go over if you would to revelation chapter six here here's where people get confused on this they 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 say to themselves well you know if jesus christ is going to bring them with him if they're already in heaven what's the point of even having a resurrection well the point is to resurrect the body that's the point it's a bodily re it's all about the body it's bodily resurrection the soul's already there the Bible also says in Hebrews chapter 12 that we're compassed about with a great cloud of witnesses. So let us run with patience the race that is set before us. And I believe that's a reference to the people who've gone on before us looking down on us and observing and seeing the works that we do and so forth. That's what I believe that's referring to in Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. But if you go to Revelation chapter 6, we can see an example of this, okay? This is when the fifth seal is open, starting in verse number nine. And this is when a lot of people are going to be killed for the cause of Christ during the tribulation. And it says in verse number nine, when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar 
the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season, until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. Now there's a lot of things that we can learn just from these three verses. First of all, we notice that he saw the souls of them which were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Why? Because this is a period in time when people are being martyred for the cause of Christ. People are being killed during the tribulation. And so he sees them right away. They're already in heaven. And not only that, but they're awake and they're waiting because they're saying, how long? I mean, if somebody's saying, how long? That means they're experiencing time. They're experiencing a wait. How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? The next thing we see, white robes were given unto every one of them. Now notice, this is the soul. This isn't bodily. This isn't a resurrection of the body. The souls of them which were slain for the word of God appear in heaven, but they're able to wear a white robe. Okay, so we need to understand that the, the person who is a soul isn't just mist or something. <laughs> you know, it's not just like a cloud of mist or some kind of a, 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 a spirit in that sense, but rather the soul can put on clothing. So the soul is going to look like a person. It's just not going to be flesh and, and, and bone. It'll be the soul. And yet the soul can put on a white robe and rest and wait and, and be patient. So this doctrine of soul sleep is a false doctrine where the, the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Seventh-day Adventists, for example, would teach that when you die, you're, you're just asleep and not conscious of anything. And so basically, you know when you go to bed at night, if you sleep well, you just wake up and it's the next morning. Like you lay down and then it seems like two seconds go by. And it's like, whoa, it's the next morning. That's how you sleep when you're sleeping well. You know, if you have a rough night, you might wake up, toss and turn. Whatever. But if you sleep well, I mean, if you're really tired and children, the way children sleep. I remember when I was a kid, it was just like you're warped to the next morning. <laughs> so the soul sleep doctrine basically says that when you die, you're just warped. You're just warped to the, to the, the, the second coming. You know, you're just warped to that resurrection. But that's not biblical because actually we see here waiting Okay, and we see people consciously in heaven. We see Paul desiring to depart and be with Christ and so forth. So this, this, this soul sleep warp doctrine. See, when the Bible talks about those who are asleep in Jesus, it's the body is what sleeps. That's why it says in Daniel chapter 12 that, they, that many of them which sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. That's the body that's in the dust of the earth sleeping there. Okay, so the body is asleep, but the soul is alive and well up in heaven. There's so much evidence of that also in the fact that Abraham, Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and was glad. Jesus, when he was on this earth, said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and was glad. That shows that Abraham's not asleep somewhere, dead somewhere. No, no, no. He was able to observe from heaven Jesus Christ's day and be glad about it and rejoice about it. And they said, you know, you know you're not even 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. They didn't understand what he's talking about. And he said, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. They're alive. They're up in heaven observing the great cloud of witnesses, right? 
So the Bible's real clear that when we talk about this resurrection associated with the second coming of Christ, associated with the rapture, we're talking about a bodily resurrection. The bodies are being raised up. That's the whole point. That's the whole purpose because the souls are already up in heaven. Here we see they're waiting, they're clothed. Now this becomes important because people will try to grasp at straws to prove a pre-tribulation rapture when the Bible says that the rapture happens after the tribulation, immediately after. Matthew 24, 29 through 31. People who don't want to believe that, they come up with all this logic and reasons why that can't be true. They can't ever show you a verse that says before the tribulation. There's nothing even close to that. So instead, they have to come up with all these crazy ideas. So they'll come out with stuff like, well, the rapture has to be before the tribulation because the tribulation in chapter 6 But in chapter 5, the 24 elders are already up there. You know, so to them, like, well, the 24 elders are up there, case closed. I mean, everybody must have been raptured, even though there's no mention of the rapture. The 24 elders, I mean, 24 guys being there, it's got to be it. But here's the thing about that. There's, there, it should be of no surprise to us that there's 24 elders in chapter 5 because Everybody who's ever died, who's saved, is in heaven right now. So finding 24 of them shouldn't shock any of us at all. There's nothing shocking about that. Say, well, they have crowns on their head. Well, they have a white robe. Well, no surprise there either, because the souls in chapter 6 are being handed white robes and told to rest and told to wait. No shock that they're clothed and crowned and whatever because apparently the soul can put on these type of accessories. So the resurrection's a bodily resurrection. Okay, that's what we need to understand about the rapture. The bodies of the, of the dead in Christ will rise and also our physical bodies, we will be carried by the angels, we'll be caught up together with them in the clouds as well at the rapture, we which are alive and remain. You know, another reason why it's important to remember it's a bodily resurrection, look at chapter four, verse one. It says, after this I looked and behold a door was opened in heaven and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me which said, come up hither and I'll show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the spirit and behold a throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne. People will try to say this is the rapture because they're just trying to put it before the tribulation even though it's not there. So they'll say, well, there it is. It's right there. One guy, John, No trumpet, just a voice like a trumpet because it's loud. I mean, the Bible says, lift up thy voice like a trumpet to preachers. Well, if I'm supposed to preach and cry loud and spare not, lift up my voice like a trumpet. I mean, does that mean I'm supposed to get up here and go, No, no, it's just saying, be loud. Trumpets are loud, be loud. He's not saying sound like a trumpet. Right? He's just saying, preach loud. Okay, see, this is a voice like a trumpet. It's a loud voice. Okay, now that's one guy, but look at verse 2. Immediately I was in the Spirit. Was John, think about this, this is important. John, who wrote the book of Revelation, was he physically caught up to heaven? Did he physically go there? Did he bodily take a trip to heaven? No. He was in the Spirit. This was a spiritual journey. God brought him in the spirit up to heaven, showed him all these things. He did not literally physically go there. Is that what the rapture is going to be like? Just a spiritual trip that we take? 
No, the rapture is a bodily resurrection and a bodily trip, you know, where we're caught up together in the clouds. Okay, go to Revelation 19. We're going to look at the third, the third great foundation here. Remember the title of the sermon is Bible Prophecy Foundations. Look, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? What, how can I have a conversation with somebody about Bible prophecy when every time I say second coming or the coming of Christ, they're thinking about Revelation 19 instead of thinking about the rapture? How can I have a conversation with them when they think the second coming is Armageddon? When in reality, the second coming is the rapture. That's point one. You know, otherwise, we're, we're speaking a foreign language here. And then, and then when I talk about the resurrection, if they don't even understand that the resurrection's a bodily resurrection. And by the way, the resurrection of Jesus was bodily. Amen. He walked out of the tomb. He showed them the holes in his hands. He showed them the hole in his side just to prove, hey, this is a bodily resurrection. He said, a spirit hath not flesh and bone as you see me to have. And then he said, children, have you any meat? And he ate with them. He ate and drank with them to prove that he was there in the flesh. He ate fish. He ate honeycomb. He dined and drank with them in order to prove that it was a bodily resurrection. So we have to lay that down in order to have an intelligent conversation about this. But the third foundational truth is that Armageddon is a separate event from the second coming. Armageddon is a separate event from the second coming. Here's what happens. You tell somebody, post-tribulation rapture. They're like, you're saying the rapture is at Armageddon. That's what they think. You're putting the rapture in chapter 19, even though you never said any such thing. But they'll just automatically pin that on you because they don't understand the term second coming. They don't understand the term tribulation. They don't understand when Armageddon is. So they get confused because they're not speaking the same language. Number one, second coming is the rapture. Crystal clear. Number two, 1 Thessalonians 4, case closed. Chapter two, or, or chapter two. Chapter two of this sermon. Point two, the resurrection's a bodily resurrection. And point three, Armageddon is a totally separate event from those events that happens years later. Different event, okay? Let's look at the Bible for ourselves. Let's understand Armageddon. This event is called Armageddon in chapter 16. He gathers the armies together to battle in a place called Armageddon. Chapter 19 is where the battle takes place. So the stage is set in chapter 16. This is where the battle takes place. Look at verse 6 of chapter 19. You tell me if this has anything to, in common with the rapture or, the second, or, or, or what the Bible calls the second coming. Okay? Look down at your Bible, verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. Look at verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, 
and out of his mouth goeth a sharp two-edged or a sharp sword, and with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him which he had deceived them, with which he had deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image, these both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. So what we see at this event is pretty clear. Jesus Christ is coming on a white horse, and he has the armies of the host of heaven following him on white horses. And he faces off with the Antichrist and his armies in this place called Armageddon. And he destroys them all. He kills them all. He slaughters them all. And the, the beast and the false prophet are put into the lake of fire. And the remnant of them, the rest of them, are slain with the sword of him that sit upon the horse, which sword proceed out of his mouth. So... This battle is not really much of a battle, you know, because Jesus Christ just defeats them all, just destroys them all. The armies behind him don't really have a function. They're just riding on his coattails, as it were. I mean, did anybody get something different from this? I mean, that's what we read, right? Jesus came on a white horse, got these armies. He faced off against the Antichrist armies. All the bad guys are killed. The fowls feast on their flesh. Vultures, scavengers, they come and, and feast on the flesh of the, of the fallen slain. Pretty easy to understand, this event. What's this event called? Armageddon. That's what it's called. That's the place, the name of the place. This is the beginning of the millennium. This is where Jesus is about to set up his 1,000-year reign on this earth. Okay, that's why it said at the beginning, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth and, and everything. You know, he's there He's on the white horse. He's coming to conquer. You know, as the Antichrist had impersonated him earlier in the book, he's the real thing to set up his kingdom on this earth. Now, let me ask you something. Where in that chapter was this called the second coming of Christ? Can somebody explain that to me? Where did this chapter say this is the second coming of Christ or this is the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? Where does it say that? It doesn't say it anywhere. Now, let's, let's pretend that it said it. Let's pretend for a second this is called the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It would be a third coming if we count it. I mean, I'm just being honest with you, right? It would be a th the third coming. But is it called the coming? It's not called the coming at all. But yet today in Bible colleges all over America and churches all over America, they're being just brainwashed with this just over and over and over to where they just believe it as fact that this is the second coming of Christ, and that when the Bible talks about the second coming, this is what it's talking about, and you need to differentiate between the second coming and the rapture. Well, here's the thing, I'll definitely dif differentiate between Armageddon and the rapture. They have nothing in common. 
I mean, at the rapture, Jesus Christ comes in the clouds, a trumpet sounds, the dead in Christ rise first, the elect are caught up together with them in the clouds, the saved are caught up together to be with the Lord in the air. I don't see any of that in this chapter. I don't see, uh, I don't see a resurrection in this chapter. I don't see Christ in the clouds. I don't hear a trumpet sounding. I don't see any of that. And I don't see this being called the second coming. So yeah, there's a big difference between Armageddon and the second coming. There's a big difference between Armageddon and the rapture. It's not that difficult to see the difference, is it? Now, let's go to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. Everybody got Revelation 19 down? Everybody understand that event? Revelation 19, this is after God's been pouring out his wrath, seven trumpets, seven vials, all the wrath is poured out. And then God destroys Babylon in chapters 17 and 18. The wrath is poured out. Babylon's wiped out. Jesus Christ is just in chapter 19 delivering the coup de grace to the Antichrist and the false prophet. And all the armies that follow them are slain. Now, not everybody on the earth is killed. Just those armies that are gathered at Armageddon following the Antichrist and false prophet. Other people in other parts of the world survive, of course. But they are slain. Okay, now let's go to Matthew 24. Now, Matthew 24 is the key passage where Jesus Christ himself, while on this earth, taught on his second coming. You know, they ask him at the beginning, what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus Christ teaches this great teaching on the tribulation and on his second coming. Let's look at the key passage in verse 29 where it says immediately after the tribulation of those days, what was basically described in all the scriptures leading up to this, immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Then shall appear the sign of the son of man in heaven and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn and they shall see the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, when you try to show this passage to people who've been taught false doctrine, here's what they'll say. That's not the rapture. That's what they'll say. And you say, well, how do you know that's not the rapture? Well, because it's after the tribulation. <laughs> that's talking about after the tribulation. And we know that the rapture comes before the tribulation because... Because it does. It just does, okay? Because it does. Don't you know that, you know, Jesus Christ is going to return at any moment and there's going to be a rapture followed by seven years of tribulation and then the second coming on the white horse and blah, 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 blah. But you, just because you say it, though, doesn't make it so. It's like these people, they think they can just, like God, speak things into existence. Only God can do that. Right. You can't do that. God can say, let there be light and there's light. You can't say, let there be light and there's light. You, if it's dark, it's dark. Yeah. You know, if it's, if it's crooked, you can't make it straight. If it's light, you can't, you know, woe unto them that put light for dark and dark. No, 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 you don't have that power to speak things into existence. They just speak things into existence like seven years tribulation and just there it is. No basis in the Bible for the tribulation lasting seven years. 
zero basis, but they just speak it into existence. Or, the, well, well, the tribulation's called the time of Jacob's trouble. And no. nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> Look up that term, Jacob's trouble. It has nothing to do with the tribulation. Doesn't, it, it's, it's, it's a day. It's not seven years. It, you know, it's, just, it's all made up, folks. They speak things into existence, and then they just, they put them out there, and they're just like, case closed, with no scriptural support. Okay, I'm supporting what I believe with scripture. The foundation is the rock, that the coming of the Lord is the rapture, and so forth. But here's what they'll say. Well, this isn't the rapture. That's not the rapture. This is the second coming, their second coming, which what's, what's their, their second coming's Armageddon. The real second coming's what? The rapture. Is everybody following the sermon? Okay. So let's ask ourselves this question, okay? Because, because if this is the critical passage that upon which, you know, this, this whole thing could just be settled. I mean, you could settle it in other places too. But this is a great place to just put this thing to bed. After the tribulation, it says. Okay. The question is, is this referring to what we say it refers to, which is what? We say this is the rapture. Trumpet sounds, Christ comes in the clouds, the elect are gathered. It's a no-brainer that it's the rapture. What do they say it is? They say it's Revelation 19. They say it's Armageddon. They say it's their warped version of the second coming. Well, here's my question. Which event does this passage have more in common with? I mean, think about it. On one side, we have us saying, this is the rapture. On the other side, we have them saying, well, it's after the tribulation, so it must be Revelation 19. Okay, what does this have in common with Revelation 19? Does this talk anything about, you know, uh, does this talk anything about the events that we read about the Antichrist and the false prophet being cast into the lake of fire, the armies being slain, the birds eating their flesh? I mean, is that, is that what this is about? No. Okay, but what does it have in common with the rapture? A trumpet sounding, Christ coming in the clouds, and the elect being gathered. Ding, 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 ding. We have a winner. I mean, it's not that complicated, right? Unless you just don't want to see it. Unless you just refuse to see it. Okay. And so once you understand this, you see, okay, this is the rapture happening after the tribulation. And what's the other key event here? Besides what we would expect to see at the rapture, we'd expect to see a trumpet, Christ in the clouds, elect gathered. Another major thing that's brought out here is the sun and moon being darkened. So let me ask you this. Are the sun and moon darkened in Revelation 19 at Armageddon? There's no mention of the sun and moon being darkened. Okay, but are the sun and moon darkened at the rapture? Well, the sun and moon being darkened are associated with an event known as the day of the Lord. All throughout the Bible, many scriptures. And guess what? The rapture takes place on the day of the Lord. Yeah. That's why the rapture is also called the day of Jesus Christ or the day of Christ. And if you look up all the mentions of the coming of Christ, day of Christ is used interchangeably. The coming of Christ, the day of Jesus Christ, the day of the Lord. Let's close with this. Go to 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. And let's see another tie-in between the rapture and Matthew 24. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is a foundational sermon. And, and you know, until, until you can get somebody to figure out some of these basic truths, it, it can be hard. It can be frustrating. 
It's, it's like as frustrating as trying to talk to somebody who only speaks Spanish and you speak English. That's going to be frustrating. That's kind of how you feel sometimes when you're explaining things to people. And you're like, no, no, the rapture's after the tribulation. Oh, so you're saying the rapture's in Revelation 19? No. Oh, so the rapture is coming after God pours out his wrath then? Because they don't even know the tribulation and God's wrath are two different things. Totally separate. But, 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 but it can be frustrating. So that's why we got we to agree upon some basic truth. And look, if, if we can't agree that the rapture is called the second coming or the coming of Christ, then you, you need to just... I don't know what you need to do. I mean, you need, I mean, if we can't even agree on that, it's like, okay, well, you know, I can't, I can't take you to second grade until you graduate from first grade. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, it's like, well, okay, if I can't get you to agree that two plus two is four when it's right in front of you, what good is solving for X going to do? You know, I don't hate you. I'm not mad at you. But you know what? Come back when you know that two plus two is four. When you can, when you can actually, and it's really not even two plus two. It's actually one plus one. Because yeah. the first coming is in Bethlehem and the second coming is in the clouds. It's like, if I, if I can just, if I show someone, first Thessalonians 4, this is the coming of the Lord, and they're just like, no, it's not the second coming. What do you do with somebody like that? Where do you go next? What do you say? No, the sky is not blue. No, one plus one is 1.5. Where do you go next at that point, right? It's, it's, see what I'm saying? But look at 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4 the key passage, verses 13 through 18, look what it goes right into in, in verse 1 of chapter 5, but. Now, what part of speech is but? That's a conjunction, right? So we've got a little conjunction junction here, you know, between chapter 4 and chapter 5. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. Now, let me ask you the obvious question. The times and the seasons of what? What we just talked about, Right? So we just talked about what everyone would reference as the rapture. Christ coming in the clouds, trumpet sounds, we're caught up together with him. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Now, let me ask you this. If the day of the Lord and the rapture were not the same thing, would that make any sense, what he just said? That wouldn't make any sense. It wouldn't make any sense. Well, well of course you know the timing of, you know, Garrett's trip to, to Guyana because you know that his trip to Malawi is in April. That wouldn't make any sense. We're talking about two totally different trips. What does the timing of the trip in Malawi have to do with the timing of the trip to Guyana? It's two different things. But if I said, well, of the times and the seasons of Garrett's trip to Guyana, you have no need that I write unto you because you know that the 40-day revival starts on January 25th and you know that he's preaching at that. If you already know the dates of the 40-day of the revival, that tells you when Garrett's going to be down in Guyana preaching. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? That would make sense, right? Because we're talking about the same thing. But it'd be like, well, you know, of the time and the season of, of Garrett's trip to Guyana, you have no need that I write unto you because you know about what he did in Botswana. Or, you know the date of the chili cook-off? 
You know, uh, of the times of the seasons of his trip to Guyana, you have no need that around you. You all know that the chili cook-off takes place on October 31st. That wouldn't make any sense, would it? You'd be like, what? What are you talking about? He's jumping all over the place, talking about all these different things. No, no, no. Look, you have no need that I write unto you of the times and the seasons of the rapture, what we just talked about, because you already know that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, verse 4, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. He doesn't say that day's not going to overtake you at all. He says it's not going to overtake you as a thief. He's coming as a thief in the night to the unsaved. But unto the saved, we are ready for that. We expect that. We are waiting for that. We look forward to that. You're all the children of light and the children of darkness. We're not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night, and on and on. So the, the point is that if we know that the day of the Lord is happening at the same time as the rapture, same timing, and we know that the big thing about the day of the Lord, whether we're reading Isaiah 13, whether we're reading the Minor Prophets, Joel chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, we know the big thing associated with the day of the Lord is the sun and moon being darkened. And it makes perfect sense when we're reading about the rapture in Matthew 24, 29 through 31, that we're going to talk about the sun and moon being darkened in the same place. But are the sun and moon being darkened over in Revelation 19? Nope. But they claim that's the end of the tribulation. Yet there's no sun and moon being darkened. Yet in the book of Revelation, when are the sun and moon darkened? At the opening of the sixth seal. So you know what that means? Everything after the sixth seal is not the tribulation. Because it's after the tribulation that the sun and moon are darkened. Everything after the sun and moon are darkened is you're no longer in the tribulation. That's the wrath. That's God pouring out his wrath. So what we end up with is this. Tribulation. Then the sun and moon are darkened. The rapture takes place. Then God pours out his wrath in the seven trumpets and seven vials. Then Armageddon then the millennium. That's the biblical order. That's what you actually see in scripture. So what you end up with is a, uh, a post-tribulation, pre-wrath rapture. So there is no pre-tribulation rapture in your dreams, buddy. Yeah, you'd like that, wouldn't you? Just to go from your happy, smooth, easy life in America, and then all of a sudden you just are warped out of here before anything goes bad. Yeah, sounds great. Send your check now, today, you know. But the thing is, that's not biblical. There's a tribulation. Immediately after the tribulation, sun and moon are darkened, rapture. Then God pours out his wrath on this earth. So we, do have, we are pre-wrath. It's a pre-wrath rapture. You say, well, why don't you just call it a pre-wrath rapture then? And I, I've, I've taught this to pastors. I've sat down with a pastor and taught him all this out of the Bible. And he agreed with me. And he's just like, man, you know, I'm nervous about this, you know, because you know that all your friends are going to turn on you, you're going to be blackballed. And I said, well, he's like, is there something else that we could call it besides post-trib rapture? <laughs> it's like, that sounds bad. And I said, well, you could call it pre-wrath. And he's like, oh, I like that a lot better. Because <laughs> at least it's got pre in it. You know what I mean? It makes me feel better, you know. But, you know, I don't really use the term pre-wrath that much. You know why? Because I'd rather just take it right to him. Yeah. 
I'd rather just take it to them. Post-tribulation. Why? Because, well, if you were reading the Bible in Latin, that's what this verse says. Post-tribulationem. You know, that's, it, you know, because that after, because post is Latin for after. After the tribulation, post-tribulation. I like it. You know why I like that better? It's more biblical. Because it's straight out of the Bible. Post-tribulation means after the tribulation. Straight, it's, it's, a, it's a quote from the Bible. Matthew 24, 29. And you know what? Let them put that in their in their pope and smack it. You know, let let them let them deal with let them deal with that term post, and and get all worked up about it. Somebody needs to get worked up about something instead of just blindly following stuff that's not biblical. You know, well, let's just say we're premillennial. That sounds good. Pre, I'm hey, I'm premillennial. Amen. Amen. Premillennial, pre-wrath, post-trib. You know, the, these, these pre-trib preachers, they're like, I'm so pre, I don't even go to the post office. I won't even eat, I won't even eat, I won't even eat post cereal, they said. I won't even eat post raisin bran. I'm so pre. I've heard them get up and say, I'm pre everything. Yeah, that sounds real cute, but it's false. It doesn't say pre-tribulationem. It's not, it's not, pre, it's post. Post, all right? Reminds me of when my son told me to preach against the post office when he was, uh, when he was a toddler. <laughs> this has absolutely nothing to do with the sermon. The sermon's over. The sermon's over, so I'm just going to tell you a funny story. The sermon's over. All right, we're done. Amen. But anyway, so we, uh, one time when my son was a toddler, I went to the post office, and this guy just picked a fight with me for no reason. And this guy was just, you know, I don't know. If it, sometimes it's like these homo types. It's like they just know who you are or something, and they just pick a fight with you for no reason just because you're you. I don't know if the demons inside of them are telling them that or just, you know, or they can just sense that you're just a, a, a straight Christian male or something, you know. But anyway, this, this, this faggoty guy in the post office just started something with me, you know, and I said, you know, hey, listen, pal, you know, what, and I, I told him off or whatever, just leave me alone. And, you know, I was just trying to kind of get the guy off my back. And I was, you know, kind of, it was just kind of a, 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 not an altercation, but just, you know what I mean? You know how people just start stuff with you in public, and I'm just trying to diffuse it, but I'm telling this guy, telling him off a little bit. Call, and I just said, hey, listen, pal, you know. So anyway, I get in the car with my, with my two sons, and one of them was a toddler. It was Isaac. He was a toddler. And we get in the car. And we go home, and, you know, they didn't say anything about it. They didn't mention anything about it. They forgot about this, this yelling match in the post office, you know, just that was kind of weird. They just, no, I didn't say anything about it. They didn't say anything about it. It was just kind of something that happened. And uh, we get home, and, and uh, you know, the next day is church. I preach on Sunday morning, and Isaac comes to me on Sunday afternoon, and he says, Dad, what are you going to preach on tonight? And I said, well, you know, I don't. I don't know, you know, I mean, you got any ideas, you know? And he said, preach on pals. And he said, and preach about the post office, because there's pals there. So he because <laughs> it is, it is toddler mind. He's thinking like, he's thinking like, well, this long-haired sodomite, 
dad's calling him pal. So he, he thought pal was like some kind of a derogatory term for homos or something. Like it, it's like another word for calling him a fag or something, you know? Like, and he's like, preach on, preach on pals. And he said, preach about the post office because there's pals there. So anyway, that had nothing to do with the sermon. Post. All right, let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word, Lord, and, and thank you for making it so simple that even a theologian could understand, Lord. And thank you for, uh, you know, uh, allowing us to have your word in the English language. We can read the King James Bible. We can understand uh, Bible prophecy. We can understand all things through the Holy Spirit and, and through the Bible. We, we don't need man to teach us, but we can actually read it and understand it on our own just by uh, allowing the Spirit to be our guide. Lord, help us to put aside man-made doctrines and man-made teachings that conflict with your word. And help us to base our, 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 our understanding on the rock, on the rock of your word, and have that foundation strongly laid, Lord. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Number 61, we'll never say goodbye. Song number 61, let's sing it out on that first verse. <coughs> Well, this long-haired sodomite, dad's calling him pal. So he, he thought pal was like some kind of a derogatory term for homos or something. Like it, it's like another word for calling him a fag or something, you know? Like, and he's like, preach on, preach on pals. And he said, preach about the post office because there's pals there. So anyway, that had nothing to do with the sermon. Post. All right, let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word, Lord, and, and thank you for making it so simple that even a theologian could understand, Lord. And thank you for, uh, you know, uh, allowing us to have your word in the English language. We can read the King James Bible. We can understand uh, Bible prophecy. We can understand all things through the Holy Spirit and, and through the Bible. We, we don't need man to teach us, but we can actually read it and understand it on our own just by uh, allowing the Spirit to be our guide. Lord, help us to put aside man-made doctrines and man-made teachings that conflict with your word. And help us to base our, 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 our understanding on the rock, on the rock of your word, and have that foundation strongly laid, Lord. And in Jesus' name we pray.